0: Welcome to China in Context, I'm Duncan Bartlett. Shifting allegiances are a hallmark of the changes taking place in the global order, and one of the most profound changes is the way Germany views Russia and China. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz has imposed tough sanctions on Russia and dispatched weapons to the Ukrainian military, while the German Defence Minister, Christine Lambrecht, has called on the European Union to discuss a total ban on Russian gas. And as Germany's relationship with Russia goes sour, so the gulf between Berlin and Beijing grows wider. China and Germany have been at odds over a range of issues over the past few years, including human rights, the imposition of Hong Kong's national security law, and the status of Taiwan. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome back to our podcast a guest with a deep understanding of international relations and of China, Bonnie S. Glazer. She's the director of the Asia Programme at the German Marshall Fund, and she presents the excellent China Global Podcast. Bonnie, I'm so pleased that you can join us again from Washington, D.C.
1: Thank you so much for having me back.
0: May I start by asking you about the significance of the changes in the relationship between Germany and China, which have taken place recently? What does this changing situation mean for the world?
1: There's been a lot of changes in Germany's relationship with China, but of course, that's just a subset of the changes in China's overall relationship with Europe. Um, There have been growing concerns about uh, Chinese policies, uh, during uh, COVID-19, when China was uh, uh, circulating below standard testing kits and medical masks to many European countries, including Germany. There's been growing concerns about China's human rights policies uh, in, in Xinjiang, uh, China imposed sanctions on EU parliamentarians and uh, NGOs. Um, and, and that led uh, Germany to lead, the I, I think, the, the, the effort to freeze the investment agreement known as uh, the CHI. Uh, And uh, there's been forced labor. Uh, Germany has supported an EU-wide import ban on goods made with uh, with forced labor. Annalena Baerbach herself said she wouldn't attend the Olympics that took place last uh, February. So I think there's been uh, a number of changes. And then on top of that, of course, there's the Ukraine war, um, which has led to, I think, uh, uh, it's been a real wake up call for Germany and for other European countries that China has refused to even use the term invasion and has blamed NATO uh, for the war. And that has led Germany's uh, Chancellor Schultz along with other European leaders um, uh, to call for China to urge Russia to end the war, but but Beijing has not done so. Uh, So there has been a gradual shift over the last several years.
0: You talk about a, a more fractious relationship But I'm thinking that most of the things that you've mentioned there have been in the last couple of years. If we were to go back uh, to when former Chancellor Angela Merkel was Germany's leader, she was clearly held in high esteem by China. And I think it's fair to say that she took the view that the best way to persuade China to remain in compliance with international norms was through business. Indeed, she pushed hard for that EU investment deal with Beijing. Uh, That was a good time for China, wasn't it?
1: Well, yes, the Chinese, I think, um, appreciated the fact that Angela Merkel would only talk about um, criticism she had of Chinese policies behind closed doors, uh, which was, of course, very different from the United States, especially um, in the latter part of the Trump administration. Um, And Angela Merkel did, as you say, uh, believe that the best way to influence China's own policies, um, domestically as well as internationally, was through business. Uh, There was a time that the United States was more optimistic as well, that trade with China would lead China to become, um, as we used to say, more like us, uh, adopt more democratic practices. But the United States became... I think, um, more pessimistic about the achievement of that goal earlier than Angela Merkel did. In her final years in power, I think she was very reluctant to give up that set of uh, beliefs. And it was only possible through a change in government for Germany's own policy to really begin to change. But even when Angela Merkel was still uh, chancellor, you could see in public opinion polls in Germany that there was a clear trend, uh, negative trend in the attitudes of Germans uh, towards China and and its its policies. Uh, So uh, it it is not surprising to me that uh, we saw a fairly uh, significant shift once uh, Chancellor Schultz came to power.
0: Sure. And I think you're talking about a a trend which was identifiable not just in Germany, but also in the United States, in Canada, Australia, and here in the UK. And many critics of China have been warning for years that, yes, China is getting richer, but it's not becoming more liberal. It's not becoming more democratic. And they've been drawing attention to the rather strident nationalist anti-Western tone from Xi Jinping. You know, I can't imagine that's going to be softened uh, if his power becomes entrenched at the 20th Party Congress in November. Do you think people in Germany have been turning a bit of a deaf ear to these warnings? Are they ill-informed?
1: Well, well as I said, I do think that there's been a gradual change in attitudes toward China in in Germany. And, and this has taken place in most of the advanced industrialized world. Uh, Uh, To be fair, people in Germany aren't necessarily on the front lines of China's policies, Uh, so unless they read the newspaper, they're very interested in in international affairs, uh, they they might not experience this personally, Uh, but of course if they're paying attention, they see things like Chinese trade coercion against Lithuania, a member of the EU, um, and that has led to, I think, an uproar um, in, uh, in in parts of Europe. Countries should see this as a wake-up call because they too could become targets of Chinese trade coercion. So as these um, the impact of Chinese policy is felt greater in Germany, as it's seen as closer to home, I think we'll see an even stronger reaction and, and, and more support for a tougher pushback.
0: Xi Jinping is likely to become anointed again as China's leader with that big meeting that takes place in the autumn. How do you see foreign policy issues such as China's relationship with the EU and the relationship with Germany? How do you see that changing or playing out if Mr. Xi does indeed get another third term in office?
1: Well, the Chinese continue to see Europe as a potential independent pole in the international system. They want to drive a wedge between the United States and Europe. They want to promote uh, strategic autonomy uh, in Europe. Uh, So they believe that uh, NATO uh, should no longer exist. It's a Cold War relic Um, along with other US alliances uh, in in Asia. So I think that this trend will will continue potentially because the Chinese have concluded that the United States will remain implacably hostile toward uh, China and that this intense competition will continue for many, many years to come. So China will be looking for friends elsewhere.
0: Oh, that's a fascinating analysis. I want to talk about globalization. It's a word that we hear used in in many different contexts, but um, in terms of exports uh, from China, Germany's been one of the great partners in helping China on this path to globalization in this respect, because in many cases it's the Germans who sold the machines to the Chinese factories so that they could make these products which they then sell on to the rest of the world. So, you know, you might pick up a box that says made in China, but if there was space on the label for another phrase, it might say made in China with German technology. I'm sensing a shift, though. Um, A lot of people are talking about indigenous innovation, dual circulation, these kind of phrases in China. It's not really prioritizing cooperation in the same way as before, is it?
1: I think that's absolutely true. I think that China sees um, risks and vulnerabilities in being too connected to the rest of the world, although there are also advantages. So essentially dual circulation, the way I like to describe it, is that China wants the world to rely more on China while reducing the extent to which China relies on the rest of the world, especially for uh, uh, technology. Um, And and we saw at the um, National People's Congress in China earlier this year, um, a uh, reaffirmation of this dual circulation policy and the need to become more self-reliant. But the problem is that China continues to lag behind so many of the advanced industrialized countries in these key strategic technologies. So it is premature for it to be cut off, you know, from the world and to rely only on itself, it needs much more time to catch up. So you could take semiconductors as as a good example of this. Um, in 2020 China sourced only 16% of its semiconductors domestically. It's dependent on Taiwan and, and, and South Korea and, and others to get semiconductors. And despite the fact that China has invested enormous amount of money in startups um, and its own firms, um, it continues to lag very far behind. So indigenous innovation um, is the watchword. Uh, But China has to be careful about how it is implemented.
0: Do you think people in Germany who do business with China are worried about being affected by sanctions if China is accused of supporting the Russian army in Ukraine?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, But American companies also uh, share that concern. If China were to violate the sanctions on, on Russia, Uh, its banks, its companies would be targeted by the United States with secondary sanctions. It's unclear whether uh, European countries like Germany would go along, in part because they don't have the tools that the United States has already developed uh, for secondary sanctions. If um, Europe and the United States actually were to uh, impose secondary sanctions on China, then global supply chains um, would be effective in in a way that I think would be really consequential. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think China will avoid that that outcome. And the question of providing military support is is certainly an important one. I think China doesn't want to have a, 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 a cruise missile found in a city in Ukraine that has just demolished a building and killed innocent civilians with Chinese etchings on the missile. In other words, anything that's traceable, I think, um, is something that China would want to avoid.
0: Sure. Well, that, that's about the military relationship, but let me just uh, press a little bit further on that China-Russia relationship before we finish. I was reading a, a quote the other day about the way in which the Chinese state media is uh, presenting the war in Ukraine. I'll read you the quote, the propaganda apparatus in China is spreading almost exclusively Russian fairy tales about the war in Ukraine. And that quotes from an article that I found online written by Miko Hutari from the uh, Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. They've got some great researchers there actually. Uh, We like speaking to the Mercator Institute on this podcast, but I mean, there's a problem here, isn't there? Because if China is supporting the Russian propaganda effort, even if it's not actually supplying weapons, it could still be seen as culpable with the invasion of Ukraine.
1: There are certainly different kinds of culpability. Uh, China isn't shooting innocent civilians in the streets. Uh, but China is propagating Russia's narrative about the war. It is um, amplifying its disinformation, uh, particularly on issues like alleged uh, US bio bioweapons um, research uh, in Ukraine. China is also, of course, providing revenue uh, to Russia by buying its oil, along with many other countries, including countries in Europe, although there will be an effort by at least some countries to cut back uh, on those oil uh, purchases. We certainly can't pin blame on on China for starting the war. Uh, And China shouldn't be trying to pin blame on the United States uh, or Europe for starting the war. But there is more that could be done to try and take this war to an end. And I think that if anybody is pouring fuel on the fire, Um, it is certainly, uh, China is one of those countries.
0: Well, thank you, Bonnie, you've given us a great sense of how these important themes play out, not just in China and Germany, but also internationally. That was Bonnie Glaser, presenter of the China Global Podcast and director of the Asia Programme at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.